Section 18 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 12. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 12, Section 18. Selected Excerpts by John William Draper, 1811 to 1882. The subject of this sketch was born at St. Helens, near Liverpool, England, on the 5th of May, 1811. His earliest education was obtained at a Wesleyan Methodist school, but after a time he came under private teachers, with whose help he made rapid progress in the physical sciences thus showing in his boyhood the natural bent of his mind and the real strength of his intellect. He afterwards studied for a time at the University of London, but in 1833 came to the United States and three years later graduated at the University of Pennsylvania with the degree of M.D. In 1839, he was elected to the chair of chemistry in the University of New York, a position which he held until his death in 1882. Draper's contributions to science were of a high order. He discovered some of the facts that lie at the basis of spectrum analysis. He was one of the first successful experimenters in the art of photography, and he made researches in radiant energy and other scientific phenomena. He published in 1858 a treatise on Human Physiology, which is a highly esteemed and widely used textbook. He died on the 4th of January, 1882. Draper's chief contributions to literature are three works, History of the Intellectual Development of Europe, 1863, A History of the American Civil War, 1867 to 1870, and The History of the Conflict Between Religion and Science which appeared in the International Scientific Series in 1873. Of these works, the one on the intellectual development of Europe is the ablest and takes a place beside the works of Lecky and Buckle as a contribution to the history of civilization. The history of the Civil War was written too soon after the events described to have permanent historical value. The History of the Conflict Between Religion and Science is a judicial presentation of the perennial controversy from the standpoint of the scientist. Draper's claims to attention as a philosophic historian rest mainly on his theory of the influence of climate on human character and development. He maintains that, for every climate, and indeed for every geographical locality, there is an answering type of humanity, and in his history of the American Civil War, as well as in his work on the intellectual development of Europe, he endeavored to prove that doctrine. Another theory, which is prominent in his principal work, is that the intellectual development of every people passes through five stages, namely one, the age of credulity, two, the age of inquiry, three, the age of faith, four, the age of reason, five, 
the age of decrepitude. Ancient Greece, he thinks, passed through all those stages. The age of reason beginning with the advent of physical science. Europe as a whole has now also entered the age of reason, which, as before, he identifies with the age of physical science, so that everywhere in his historical works, physical influences and the scientific knowledge of physical phenomena accredited with most of the progress that mankind has made. Draper has left a distinct mark upon the scientific thought of his generation and made a distinct and valuable contribution to the literature of his adopted country. The Vedas and Their Theology From History of the Intellectual Development of Europe Copyright 1876 by Harper and Brothers The Vedas which are the Hindu scriptures, and of which there are four, the Rig, Yagust, Saman, and Artharvan, are asserted to have been revealed by Brahma. The fourth is, however, rejected by some authorities and bears internal evidence of a later composition, at a time when hierarchical power had become greatly consolidated. These works are written in an obsolete Sanskrit, the parent of the more recent idiom. They constitute the basis of an extensive literature, of Avedas, Angus, etc., of connected works and commentaries. For the most part, they consist of hymns suitable for public and private occasions, prayers, precepts, legends, and dogmas. The rig, which is the oldest, is composed chiefly of hymns, the other three of liturgical formulas, they are of different periods and of various authorship, internal evidence seeming to indicate that if the later were composed by priests, the earlier were the production of military chieftains. They answer to a state of society advanced from the nomad to the municipal condition. They are based upon an acknowledgment of a universal spirit, pervading all things. Of this God, they therefore necessarily acknowledge the unity. There is truth but one deity, the Supreme Spirit, the Lord of the universe, whose work is the universe, the God above all gods, who created the earth, the heavens, and waters. The world, thus considered as an emanation of God, is therefore a part of him. It is kept in a visible state by his energy and would instantly disappear if that energy were for a moment withdrawn. Even as it is, it is undergoing unceasing transformations, everything being in a transitory condition. The moment a given phrase is reached, it is departed from, or ceases. In these perpetual movements, the present can scarcely be said to have any existence, for as the past is ending, the future has begun." In such a never-ceasing career, all material things are urged, their forms continually changing and returning as if it were through revolving cycles to similar states. For this reason, it is that we may regard our earth and the various celestial bodies as having had a moment of birth, as having a time of continuance in which they are passing onward to an inevitable destruction, and that, 
after the lapse of countless ages, similar progresses will be made, and similar series of events will occur again and again. But in this doctrine of universal transformation, there is something more than appears at first. The theology of India is underlaid with pantheism. God is one because he is all. The Vedas, in speaking of the relation of nature to God, made use of the expression that he is the material as well as the cause of the universe, the clay as well as the potter. They conveyed the idea that while there is a pervading spirit existing everywhere, of the same nature as the soul of man, though differing from it infinitely in degree, Visible nature is essentially and inseparably connected therewith, that as in man the body is perpetually undergoing changes, perpetually decaying and being renewed, or, as in the case of the whole human species, nations come into existence and pass away. Yet, still there continues to exist what may be termed the universal human mind so forever associated and forever connected, are the material and the spiritual. And under this aspect, we must contemplate the Supreme Being, not merely as a presiding intellect, but as illustrated by the parallel case of man, whose mental principle shows no tokens except through its connection with the body. So matter, or nature, or the visible universe is to be looked upon as the corporeal manifestation of God. Primitive Beliefs Dismissed by Scientific Knowledge From History of the Intellectual Development of Europe, Copyright 1876, by Harper and Brothers As man advances in knowledge, he discovers that of his primitive conclusions, some are doubtless erroneous and many require better evidence to establish their truth uncontestably. A more prolonged and attentive examination gives him reason, in some of the most important particulars, to change his mind. He finds that the earth on which he lives is not a floor covered over with a starry dome, as he once supposed, but a globe self-balanced in space. The crystalline vault or sky is recognized to be an optical deception. It rests upon the earth nowhere and is no boundary at all. There is no kingdom of happiness above it, but a limitless space adorned with planets and suns. Instead of a realm of darkness and woe in the depths of the other side of the earth, men like ourselves are found there, pursuing, in Australia and New Zealand, the innocent pleasures and encountering the ordinary labors of life. By the aid of such lights as knowledge gradually supplies, he comes at last to discover that this, our terrestrial habitation, instead of being a chosen, a sacred place, is only one of similar myriads, more numerous than the sands of the sea, and prodigally scattered through space. Never, perhaps, was a more important truth discovered. All the visible evidence was in direct opposition to it. The earth, which had hitherto seemed to be the very emblem of immobility, was demonstrated to be carried with a double motion, with prodigious velocity, 
through the heavens. The rising and setting of the stars were proved to be an illusion, and as respects the size of the globe, it was shown to be altogether insignificant when compared with multitudes of other neighboring ones, insignificant doubly by reason of its actual dimensions and by the countless numbers of others like it in form, and doubtless like it, the abodes of many orders of life. And so it turns out that our Earth is a globe of about 25,000 miles in circumference. The voyager who circumnavigates it spends no inconsiderable portion of his life in accomplishing his task. It moves round the sun in a year, but at so great a distance from that luminary that if seen from him, it would look like a little spark traversing the sky. It is thus recognized as one of the members of the solar system. Other similar bodies, some of which are of larger, some of smaller dimensions, perform similar revolutions round the sun in appropriate periods of time. If the magnitude of the earth be too great for us to attach to it any definite conception, what shall we say of the compass of the solar system? There is a defect in the human intellect, which incapacitates us for comprehending distances and periods that are either too colossal or too minute. We gain no clearer insight into the matter when we are told that a comet which does not pass beyond the bounds of the system may be, perhaps, be absent on its journey for more than a thousand years. Distances and periods such as these are beyond our grasp. They prove to us how far human reason excels imagination, the one measuring and comparing things of which the other can form no conception, but in the attempt is utterly bewildered and lost. But as there are other globes like our Earth, so too there are other worlds like our solar system. There are self-luminous suns, exceeding in number all computation. The dimensions of this Earth pass into nothingness in comparison with the dimensions of the solar system. And that system, in its turn, is only an invisible point if placed in relation with the countless hosts of other systems, which form with it clusters of stars. Our solar system, far from being alone in the universe, is only one of an extensive brotherhood, bound by common laws and subject to like influences. Even on the very verge of creation, where imagination might lie, the beginning of the realms of chaos, we see unbounded proofs of order, a regularity in the arrangement of inanimate things, suggesting to us that there are other intellectual creatures like us, the tenants of those islands in the abysses of space. Though it may take a beam of light a million years to bring to our view those distant worlds, the end is not yet. Far away in the depths of space we catch the faint gleams of other groups of stars like our own. The finger of a man can hide them in their remoteness. Their vast distances from one another have dwindled into nothing. They and their movements have lost all individuality. The innumerable suns of which they are composed blend all their collected light into one pale milky glow.
thus extending our view from the Earth to the solar system, from the solar system to the expanse of the group of stars to which we belong. We behold a series of gigantic nebula creations rising up one after another and forming greater and greater colonies of worlds. No numbers can express them, for they make the firmament a haze of stars. Uniformity, even though it be the uniformity of magnificence, tires at last, and we abandon the survey, for our eyes can only behold a boundless prospect, and conscience tells us of our own unspeakable insignificance. But what has become of the time-honored doctrine of the human destiny of the universe? That doctrine for the sake of which the controversy I have described in this chapter was raised. It has disappeared. In vain was Bruno burnt and Galileo imprisoned. The truth forced its way, in spite of all opposition, at last. The end of the conflict was a total rejection of authority and tradition, and the adoption of scientific truth. The Koran From History of the Intellectual Development of Europe Copyright 1876 by Harper and Brothers Arabian Influence, thus imposing itself on Africa and Asia by military successes and threatening even Constantinople, rested essentially on an intellectual basis, the value of which it is needful for us to consider. The Koran, which is that basis, has exercised a great control over the destinies of mankind and still serves as a rule of life to a very large portion of our race. Considering the asserted origin of this book, indirectly from God himself, we might justly expect that it would bear to be tried by any standard that man can apply and vindicate its truth and excellence in the ordeal of human criticism. In our estimate of it, we must constantly bear in mind that it does not profess to be successive revelations made at intervals of ages and on various occasions, but a complete production delivered to one man. We ought, therefore, to look for universality, completeness, perfection, we might expect that it would present us with just views of the nature and position of this world in which we live, and that whether dealing with the spiritual or the material, it would put to shame the most celebrated productions of human genius, as the magnificent mechanism of the heavens and the beautiful living forms of the earth are superior to the vain contrivances of man. Far in advance of all that has been written by the sages of India or the philosophers of Greece on points connected with the origin, nature, and destiny of the universe, its dignity of conception and excellence of expression should be in harmony with the greatness of the subject with which it is concerned. African-Arabic Manuscript, 13th Century, National Library, Paris, reduced facsimile of part of a page of an Arabic Koran in the African character, captured at Tunis by Charles V. The scribes of the East are distinguished by their efforts to acquire a perfect style of execution, and their success merits the greater praise, 
since they generally stand while writing, resting only on the left arm, and notwithstanding the inferiority of the reed to the modern pen, the Arabs have succeeded in producing the most excellent specimens of calligraphy. We might expect that it should propound with authority and definitely settle those all-important problems which have exercised the mental powers of the ablest men of Asia and Europe for so many centuries, and which are at the foundation of all faith and all philosophy, that it should distinctly tell us in unmistakable language what is God, what is the world, what is the soul, and whether man has any criterion of truth, that it should explain to us how evil can exist in a world the maker of which is omnipotent and altogether good, that it should reveal to us in what the affairs of men are fixed by destiny, in what by free will, that it should teach us whence we came, what is the object of our continuing here, what is to become of us hereafter, and since a written work claiming a divine origin must necessarily accredit itself, even to those most reluctant to receive it. Its internal evidence has become stronger and not weaker with the strictness of the examination to which they are submitted. It ought to deal with those things that may be demonstrated by the increasing knowledge and genius of man, anticipating therein his conclusions. Such a work Noble as may be its origin, must not refuse but court the test of natural philosophy, regarding it not as an antagonist, but as its best support. As years pass on, and human science becomes more exact and more comprehensive, its conclusions must be found in unison therewith. When occasion arises, it should furnish us at least the foreshadowings of the great truths discovered by astronomy and geology, not offering for them the wild fictions of earlier ages, inventions of the infancy of man. It should tell us how suns and worlds are distributed in infinite space, and how in their successions they come forth in limitless time. It should say how far the dominion of God is carried out by law, and what is the point at which it is his pleasure to resort to his own good providence or his arbitrary will. How grand the description of this magnificent universe, written by the omnipotent hand, of man it should set forth his relations to other living beings, his place among them, his privileges and responsibilities. It should not leave him to grope his way through the vestiges of Greek philosophy, and to miss the truth at last. But it should teach him wherein true knowledge consists, anticipating the physical science, physical power, and physical well-being of our own times, nay, even unfolding for our benefit things that we are still ignorant of. The discussion of subjects so many and so high is not outside the scope of a work of such pretensions, its manner of dealing with them is the only criterion it can offer of its authenticity to succeeding times. Tried by such a standard, the Koran altogether fails. 
in its philosophy, it is uncomparably inferior to the writings of Chakirmuni, the founder of Buddhism. In its science, it is absolutely worthless. On speculative or doubtful things, it is copious enough. But in the exact, where a test can be applied to it, it totally fails. Its astronomy, cosmogony, physiology are so puerile as to invite our mirth, if the occasion did not forbid. They belong to the old times of the world, the morning of human knowledge. The earth is firmly balanced in its seat by the weight of the mountains. The sky is supported over it like a dome, and we are instructed in the wisdom and power of God by being told to find a crack in it if we can. Ranged in stories, seven in number, are the heavens, the highest being the habitation of God, whose throne, for the Koran does not reject Assyrian ideas, is sustained by winged animal forms. The shooting stars are pieces of red-hot stone, thrown by angels at impure spirits when they approach too closely. Of God, the Koran is full of praise, setting forth, often in not unworthy imagery, his majesty, though it bitterly denounces those who give him any equals and assures them that their sin will never be forgiven, that in the judgment day they must answer the fearful question, Where are my companions about whom ye disputed? Though it inculcates an absolute dependence on the mercy of God and denounces at criminals all those who make a merchandise of religion, its ideas of the deity are altogether anthropomorphic. He is only a gigantic man living in a paradise. In this respect, though exceptional passages might be cited, the reader rises from a perusal of the 114 chapters of the Koran with the final impression that they have given him low and unworthy thoughts. Nor is it surprising that one of the Mohammedan sects reads it in such a way as to find no difficulty in asserting that, from the crown of the head to the breast, God is hollow, and from the breast downward he is solid, that he has curled black hair and roars like a lion at every watch of the sky. The unity asserted by Mohammed is a unity in special contradistinction to the trinity of the Christians, and the doctrine of a divine generation. Our Savior is never called the Son of God, but always the Son of Mary. Throughout, there is a perpetual acceptance of the delusion of the human destiny of the universe. As to man, Mohammed is diffuse enough respecting a future state, speaking with clearness of a resurrection, the judgment day, paradise, the torment of hell, the worm that never dies, the pains that never end. But with all this precise description of the future, there are many errors as to the past. If modesty did not render it unsuitable to speak of such topics here, it might be shown how feeble is his physiology when he has occasion to allude to the origin or generation of man. He is hardly advanced beyond the ideas of Thales one who is so untrustworthy a guide as to things that are past cannot be very trustworthy as to events that are to come.
of the literary execution of his work, it is perhaps scarcely possible to judge fairly from a translation. It is said to be the oldest prose composition among the Arabs, by whom Muhammad's boast of the unapproachable excellence of his work is almost universally sustained. But it must not be concealed that there have been among them very learned men who have held it in light esteem. Its most celebrated passages, as those on the nature of God, in chapters 2, 24, will bear no comparison with parallel ones in the Psalms and Book of Job. In the narrative style, the story of Joseph in chapter 12, compared with the same incidents related in Genesis, shows a like inferiority. Muhammad also adulterates his work with many Christian legends, derived probably from the apocryphal gospel of St. Barnabas. He mixes with many of his own inventions the scripture account of the temptation of Adam, the deluge, Jonah and the whale, enriching the whole with stories like the later night entertainments of his country, the seven sleepers, Gog and Magog, and all the wonders of genie, sorcery, and charms. An impartial reader of the Koran may doubtless be surprised that so feeble a production should serve its purpose so well. But the theory of religion is one thing, the practice another. The Koran abounds in excellent moral suggestions and precepts. Its composition is so fragmentary that we cannot turn to a single page without finding maxims of which all men must approve. This fragmentary construction yields texts and mottos and rules complete in themselves, suitable for common men in any of the incidents of life. There is a perpetual insisting on the necessity of prayer, an inculcation of mercy, almsgiving, justice, fasting, pilgrimage, and other good works, institutions respecting conduct, both social and domestic, debts, witnesses, marriage, children, wine, and the like. Above all, a constant stimulation to do battle with the infidel and blasphemer. For life as it passes in Asia, there is hardly a condition in which passages from the Koran cannot be recalled suitable for instruction, admonition, consolation, encouragement. To the Asiatic and to the African, such devotional fragments are of far more use than any sustained theological doctrine. The mental constitution of Mohammed did not enable him to handle important philosophical questions with the well-balanced ability of the great Greek and Indian writers, but he has never been surpassed in adaptation to the spiritual wants of humble life, making even his fearful fatalism administered thereto. A pitiless destiny is awaiting us, yet the prophet is uncertain what it may be. Unto every nation a fixed time is decreed. Death will overtake us even in lofty towers, but God only knoweth the place in which a man shall die. After many an admonition of the resurrection and the judgment day, many a promise of paradise and threat of hell, he plaintively confesses, I do not know what will be done with you or me hereafter. The Koran thus betrays a human and not a very noble intellectual origin. 
It does not, however, follow that its author was, as is so often asserted, a mere impostor. He reiterates again and again, I am nothing more than a public preacher. He defends, not always, without acerbity, his work from those who even in his own life stigmatized it as a confused heap of dreams, or what is worse, a forgery. He is not the only man who has supposed himself to be the subject of supernatural and divine communications, for this is a condition of disease to which anyone, by fasting and mental anxiety, may be reduced. In what I have thus said respecting a work held by so many millions of men as a revelation from God, I have endeavored to speak with respect and yet with freedom, constantly bearing in mind how deeply to this book Asia and Africa are indebted for daily guidance, how deeply Europe and America for the light of science. As might be expected, the doctrines of the Koran have received many fictitious editions and sectarian interpretations in the course of ages. In the popular superstition, angels and genie largely figure. The latter, being of a grosser fabric, eat, drink, propagate their kind, are of two sorts, good and bad, and existed long before men, having occupied the earth before Adam. Immediately after death, two greenish livid angels, Monkir and Nekar, examine every corpse as to its faith in God and Mohammed. But the soul, having been separated from the body by the angel of death, enters upon an intermediate state, awaiting the resurrection. There is, however, much diversity of opinion as to its precise disposal before the judgment day. Some think that it hovers near the grave, some that it sinks into the well Zenzim, some that it retires into the trumpet of the angel of the resurrection, the difficulty apparently being that any final disposal before the day of judgment would be anticipatory of that great event, if indeed it would not render it needless. As to the resurrection, some believe it to be merely spiritual, others corporeal, the latter asserting that the os cosigus, or last bone of the spinal column, will serve as if it were as a germ, and that, vivified by a reign of forty days, the body will sprout from it. Among the signs of the approaching resurrection will be the rising of the sun in the west. It will be ushered in by three blasts of a trumpet. The first, known as the blast of consternation, will shake the earth to its center and extinguish the sun and stars. The second, the blast of extermination, will annihilate all material things except paradise, hell, and the throne of God. Forty years subsequently, the angel Israfil will sound the blast of resurrection. From his trumpet there will be blown forth the countless myriads of souls who have taken refuge therein, or lain concealed. The day of judgment has now come. The Koran contradicts itself as to the length of this day, in one place making a thousand, in another fifty thousand years. Most Mohammedans incline to adopt the longer period, since angels, genie, 
men and animals have to be tried. As to men, they will rise in their natural state, but naked, white-winged camels with saddles of gold awaiting the saved. When the partition is made, the wicked will be oppressed with an intolerable heat caused by the sun, which, having been called into existence again, will approach within a mile, provoking a sweat to issue from them, and this, according to their demerits, will immerse them from the ankles to the mouth, but the righteous will be screened by the shadow of the throne of God. The judge will be seated in the clouds, the books open before him, and everything in its turn called on to account for its deeds. For greater dispatch, the angel Gabriel will hold forth his balance, one scale of which hangs over paradise and one over hell. In these, all works are weighed. As soon as the sentence is delivered, the assembly, in a long file, will pass over the bridge Al-Sarat. It is as sharp as the edge of a sword and laid over the mouth of hell. Mohammed and his followers will successfully pass the perilous ordeal, but the sinners, giddy with terror, will drop into the place of torment. The blessed will receive their first taste of happiness at a pond which is supplied by silver pipes from the river Al-Kathor. The soil of paradise is of musk, its rivers tranquilly flow over pebbles of rubies and emeralds. From tents of hollow pearls, the Horus, or girls of paradise, will come forth, attended by troops of beautiful boys. Each saint will have 80,000 servants and 72 girls. To these, some of the more merciful Muslims add the wives they have had upon earth. But the grimly orthodox assert that hell is already nearly filled with women. How can it be otherwise, since they are not permitted to pray in a mosque upon earth? I have not space to describe the silk brocades, the green clothing, the soft carpets, the banquets, the perpetual music and songs. From the glorified body all impurities will escape, not as they did during life, but in a fragrant perspiration of camphor and musk. No one will complain, I am weary. No one will say, I am sick. From the contradictions, puralities, and impossibilities indicated in the preceding paragraphs, it may be anticipated that the faith of Mohammed has been broken into many sects. Of such it is said that not less than 73 may be numbered. Some as the Sonites, are guided by traditions. Some occupy themselves with philosophical difficulties. The existence of evil in the world, the attributes of God, absolute predestination and eternal damnation, the invisibility and non-corporality of God, his capability of local motion. But the great Mohammedan philosophers, simply accepting the doctrine of the oneness of God, as the only thing of which man can be certain. Look upon all the rest as idle fables, having, however, this political use, that they furnish contention and therefore occupation to disputatious sectarians and consolation to illiterate minds. End of section 18